take a Bible and let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18 again. I hadn't planned to start chapter 19 this week also, but as I kept rereading Acts, I couldn't help but see how these chapters fit together, especially with uh, Apollos and the twelve men, both being, uh, both knowing only John's baptism. Both events also occur in Ephesus. So we're going to push through to chapter 19, verse 7, and then uh, we'll wait till missions month in September to finish out Paul's uh, lengthy ministry in, in Ephesus. Let's hear the word of the Lord from verse 18. Chapter 18, verse 18. He says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrae he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went, then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord... And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard There is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are uh, amazed by your word. That we have it, that you have revealed 
to us yourself. You have not kept yourself hidden. Not only do the heavens declare your glory, but your written word here declares your glory. And clearly and distinctly, and we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. And that as we're instructed in the way of God, we might follow and obey as a congregation. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. So every person has an identity. Your identity defines who you are. Uh, It drives where you find your ultimate significance. Uh, It determines your priorities and your moral outlook. God created us to find our identity in Him. Rebellious desires once characterized us, but God redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And for the redeemed, God has fundamentally changed our identity. Our identity stands in who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Christ defines who we are. We're God's worshipers, redeemed by His grace. We're God's family in the strength of His love. We're God's missionaries under His authority. That's who we are. Our vision for ministry then flows from that identity. And for some time now, we've summarized our vision at Redeemer Church like this. We exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory and to declare His glory to our neighbors and the nations. We exist to equip God's people, His family, to delight in His glory, that's worship, and and to declare His glory to our neighbors and the nations, missionaries. The book of Acts as we've been walking through it together, has compelled us toward that vision. And today we'll look at four more patterns here in chapter 18 and 19 that compel us toward that vision. Especially in what's involved with declaring His glory to our neighbors and the nations, as well as equipping one another as a family to do that. What that looks like in the lives of disciples, and even delighting in His glory as that pertains to our filling with the Holy Spirit. You may have noticed that Luke covers Paul traveling from Sincrae to Ephesus to Caesarea to Jerusalem, then to Antioch, and then on through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Then he hits pause on Paul's missions and focuses on Apollos for a little bit in Ephesus. Then he hits play again on Paul's mission when he gets to Ephesus himself. We're talking 1,500 miles of first century missionary travels. And all in but a handful of verses. But Ephesus keeps getting all the, ten- the attention. It's mentioned four different times. Why is that here? 
because that'll be Luke's primary focus all the way through chapter 20. Paul ministered in Ephesus for two years. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, it says a wide door for effective work had opened to the Apostle Paul. And Luke narrates the beginnings of that missionary work here with a, a little stint and, and then Apollos' ministry and then Paul returning to Ephesus later. In the process, though, four patterns stood out to me that, I, that can also mature us in gospel ministry here at Redeemer. And the first is this. Humble submission to the will of God should be evident in our mission. Humble submission to the will of God should be evident in our mission. In verse 18, Paul stays many days longer in Corinth. Why did he stay longer? Well, because God told him to stay longer. Back in verse 9, back, back in verse nine don't be afraid, but go on speaking. And don't be silent, for I am with you. He also gets a haircut in Sincrae. He was under a vow. It's not clear what sort of vow. It shares some similarities with the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. But there's no way to be sure. We just know that Paul made a vow. Again, what we're seeing here is his ongoing submission to the will of God. Next, he reasons with the Jews in Ephesus. We see his ongoing passion to preach Christ. And this too reveals his humble submission to the will of God. God placed that calling on Paul's life back in chapter 9, verse 15. Paul was to carry God's name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. Most explicitly, though, look, look at verses 20 and 21. They really characterize all that he's up to. It says, When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. If God wills. Polytheists will say, if the gods will. Uh, Muslims today will say, Insha'Allah, if Allah wills. But there are major differences with what Paul is saying here. This, this isn't a fatalistic slogan, why, like, whatever will be, will be. Just go about life without personal relationship to your distant God. No, the God Paul speaks of is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of his soul, the one who has loved him and adopted him and graciously cares for him in all circumstances. This isn't fatalism, it's, it's fatherly. Sometimes the church has distinguished between God's revealed will and his hidden will. The revealed will comes to us in Scripture. It's written here for us. And it's explicit so that we know how to obey God in whatever circumstances might come our, our way. 
But God's hidden will can't be known in advance. We must wait for it patiently while obeying the Lord in what we do know. Paul was very much like us. Unless the Lord disclosed it, he didn't know what the future held for him. But he did know the God who designed that future. He did know that Father who governs all the details. And sometimes he frustrates our plans to give us better ones. Recall chapter 16, if you want to flip just one page over, verse 6, where it says, The Holy Spirit forbid Paul to preach in Asia. Now he's back in Asia. Asia if Ephesus is, is the capital, like the, the biggest city in, in Asia at this point. But at that time, in chapter 16, verse 6, the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to preach in Asia. Then they attempted, in, there in, verse, uh, in chapter 16 also, to, to go into Bithynia, but Jesus didn't allow that either. You see, his statement, if God wills, is not some kind of fatal, fatalism. He, he's actually going about his mission in communion with God. If God wills makes sense, God's will is supreme for, for Paul. And as an adopted son, Paul gladly submits to his father's will in any of the circumstances his father may give him. You see, they want him to stay. They want him to stay and keep teaching. But he says that he must move on now and return later if God wills. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And this ought to humble us, beloved. God's will is supreme. His plans will bring all things into submission to the Lord Jesus, not our own. Which means our confidence can't lie in our plans, our strategies, our jobs, our economy, our money, our leaders, our health. Our confidence must be in the Lord Himself. Part of the difficulty with acknowledging God's sovereignty over our planning and living is that we often doubt His goodness and His wisdom. We're afraid to say, if God wills, because we know it might hurt. We might suffer more, and that can't be good for us. But the cross of Jesus Christ tells a better story. He is loving, so loving that He gave us His only Son, that we might forever have fellowship with Him. And for all those united to Jesus, He really is working all things together for your good. Of course we can't see the full picture now. But we can rest assured that He's good. He's wise. We don't know everything. He does know everything. And that means we can spend our days humbly submitting ourselves to the will of God in all circumstances. We see it in Paul's life here, and most supremely, we see it in our Lord Jesus Christ on His way to save us. 
when he says, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. Second, strengthening Christ's disciples should characterize our ministry efforts. Strengthening Christ's disciples should characterize our ministry efforts. Look at verse 22. It says, When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now remember that Antioch is the sending church. There's a map there for you to see where he's going. So he's cutting across uh, there in the water. So we're... You got Ephesus? Where are we at? Ephesus there. He's cutting across to Caesarea. And then he's going to jump down to Jerusalem just shortly. That's what he means when it says he went up and greeted the church. In, in, the, in Luke's writings, going up always meant he's going up to Jerusalem. So he goes up, greets the church, and then he goes to Antioch. All right? And that's the completion of his second missionary journey. And then it's in verse 23 when he departs from Antioch on his third missionary journey. It says, after spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the churches. So here's his third missionary journey. You can see him leaving Antioch and going through Galatia and Phrygia. So hundreds of miles on foot, This is not convenient. A handful of churches that he's already visited once. Why such effort to strengthen them all again? Because the goal was to ensure that disciples were moving toward maturity in Christ in firmly established churches. Mere conversion is not enough. Not even gathering them into local churches is enough. Paul wants maturity, strong, vibrant, healthy churches that will carry on the work once he's gone. If you look back to chapter 14, verse 22, we find what Paul's strengthening entailed. Uh, It says that he encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then they appointed elders and they prayed for them. In chapter 15, verse 32, we see Judas and Silas strengthen the brothers with many words. It involves teaching, exhortation. In Romans 1.11, Paul wants to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen the church teaching, encouraging, preparing them to suffer, training leaders, appointing them, praying over them, just being present with them. All of it played a role in strengthening the disciples. And that's a pattern in Acts that we also find throughout the rest of the New Testament. Churches ought to be concerned with strengthening Christ's disciples. You and I should be concerned with strengthening one another. Don't assume everybody is strong. We're not that strong. We're weak and need each other's help. We need each other's presence. We need, we need to hear the truth. We need each other's rebukes and corrections. 
I need your gifts to strengthen me, and vice versa. We must aim for maturity in Christ. You see, it's only when all of the joints and ligaments, when they're all working together, Ephesians 4 says, that we're built up into our head. Listen to Paul's aim for the churches he planted. and This is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that Christ powerfully works within me. I told you last week that all of us were in ministry, not just those in leadership. All Christ's disciples are in ministry, and together we should be making efforts to strengthen one another with teaching, with serving, with encouragements, with prayer, all so that we grow up into Christ. And ultimately, this kind of activity in God's people reflects what our God is like. Throughout the Bible, He is a God who strengthens His people. 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul is all alone and he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Romans 16.25, To Him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, be glory forevermore. Our God strengthens His people. And that's the kind of God He is. And by strengthening one another, not only do you become the means by which He strengthens others, you reflect what He's like. You reflect the character of God. Number three, strengthening one another in the way of God equips the individual and blesses the mission. Instructing one another in the way of God equips the individual and blesses the mission. So in verse 24, we meet a fellow named Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria. So think North Africa northern tip of Egypt there. And again, what Luke is doing is emphasizing the spread of the gospel among all peoples. This is the theological point behind all of his location references. Apollos is eloquent in speech. He's competent in the scriptures. Verse 25 says, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he knows the difference between the wrong way that leads people astray and the right way that leads people to the Lord, to salvation. We might even recall John the Baptist's words when he said, prepare the way of the Lord. He is equipped here, instructed in the way of the Lord. He's also fervent in spirit. The same phrase appears in Romans 12, 11. It could mean that he's very zealous in his human spirit. Or it could be translated as referring to God's spirit, making him passionate, much like God's spirit emboldens others in the book of Acts. 
It also says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, this makes Apollos different from the 12 men that we'll meet in just a minute. Okay, like Apollos, they are disciples of John the Baptist, but unlike Apollos, they're ignorant of Jesus and the Spirit. Okay? Apollos appears to have the Spirit, and he knows the things concerning Jesus. How much he knows, we can't be sure. We don't know. His knowledge must be limited in some way, though. Otherwise, Luke wouldn't have added this. He only knew the baptism of John. Okay? But the things he does know concerning Jesus, he teaches them rightly, accurately, even if they're incomplete. Then verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So note the difference here. It's not orthodoxy versus heresy, okay, which would still be entirely appropriate, even more appropriate, to confront. But here it's a matter of incomplete knowledge, it seems. The difference is between accurately and more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila take him aside privately, and they explain the way of God more accurately. They've been with Paul for nearly two years. They've learned a ton, I'm sure, and now they instruct Apollos. What a beautiful picture of humility in Apollos. He's educated, he's eloquent, he's competent, and yet he sits at the feet of a couple of tent makers who love Jesus, and he learns the way of God more accurately. For those of you who are in leadership or who aspire to leadership, those of you who may be more educated, don't miss this picture of humility. One of the greatest qualities you can have as a leader is to maintain a teachable spirit. But also what a beautiful picture we see in Priscilla and Aquila and how Jesus uses his people to instruct one another in the truth. Now, sisters... God doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in corporate worship. We know that from 2 Timothy. But that doesn't mean you can't ever help your brother know the truth more accurately. And brothers, that doesn't mean you can never learn from your sisters either. We should all take notes here from Priscilla and Aquila. And let's teach one another the Word of God in all the various contexts that the Lord affords us and not be fearful to correct or condescending when corrected. And not only will this equip each individual, but it will bless the mission. Look at verse 27. And when he wished to cross Achaia... The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Right? That's the only way people get saved. Through grace, they believe. He helped them, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Jesus. 
What an amazing impact Apollos went on to have in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila were faithful to play their role, and it blessed the mission. Are you being faithful with your role in the mission? Are you being faithful in your role to instruct one another in the way of God more accurately? The New Testament mentions several relationships where regular instruction should occur. We have the elders to the church. We have faithful men to faithful men, 2 Timothy 2 there. We have older women to younger women, Titus 2. We have husbands to wives and parents to children, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. And then we have all to all. Paul commended the church in Rome on that last one. All to all. Romans 15 verse 14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Able to instruct one another. Are you able to instruct one another? And if not, how are you going to get there? Because this is what's commended in Scripture. What are you studying next? What are you going to study next? Who are you going to ask for help? Send any elder or your care group leader an email if you don't know how to get started on that trajectory, and we will be more than happy to point you in the right place. And there are other godly women in this church who are also working diligently to equip other sisters. We would love to point you all in the right direction. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, meaning not just you as an individual, but you as a church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you as a church, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The Sunday morning sermon isn't everything. It is a good thing where we can all gather before the Word and hear the Word collectively taught. But it is not sufficient. It's not sufficient in making disciples. If Sunday morning is the only time we're in the Word and hearing the Word and speaking the Word, then we need to check our first love. What is it? Let's get to where we're able to instruct one another in the way of God accurately throughout the week. And not only does this make, will this make you stronger as a believer, but it will bless the mission as a whole. Number four, ensure all disciples truly know Jesus who gives His people the revitalizing, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit Ensure all disciples truly know Jesus who gives His people the revitalizing and powering presence of the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to chapter 19, verse 1. It's a puzzling text. Uh, some charismatics circles use it to support a second blessing theology. Right, A special post-conversion filling of the Spirit with tongues and prophecy, marking that fullness. 
And then others say, oh, no way. How can it be a quote-unquote second blessing if these guys aren't even Christians yet? But framing the question this way kind of distracts from the main point. And it also fails to see the unique redemptive historical situation these men find themselves in. Paul returns to Ephesus in verse 1. He meets 12 men. They're called disciples. But what sort of disciples? Usually, disciples refers to Christians in Luke's writings. People who know and follow Jesus. But a couple times, Luke also calls followers of John the Baptist disciples. In Luke chapter 7. Based on what transpires, that's likely the best way to identify these guys here. You know, Paul asks in verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And they say, well, into John's baptism. They're disciples of John. And that's not a bad thing. Luke chapter 7, verse 29, actually commends those who accepted John's baptism. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. And you recall the story about John the Baptist, right? John is the last of the prophets. He's the greatest prophet under the Old Covenant. And he's paving the way for Christ, their Messiah. He he identifies him for Israel. But leading up to Christ's arrival, he preached a baptism of repentance, right? And to participate in John's baptism was to prepare for the Christ's arrival, Repent, for the kingdom is near. Why is the kingdom near? Because Jesus is coming. Christ, your Messiah. Well, then he says this. Luke, Jesus says a few commending things about John the Baptist. And he says this in Luke chapter 7, verse 29. He says, when all the people heard Jesus' words about John and then also about John, who, who followed John, those who would be greater in the kingdom. When he heard, when all the people heard Jesus' words, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so those who followed John, what we're seeing here, they embraced God's purpose for their lives. But, so being John's disciple wasn't a bad thing at all. But it was still an incomplete thing. It was only preparatory, provisional. And apparently, many who were baptized by John had returned home. Some out to the diaspora, like like here in Ephesus. And they never witnessed the fulfillment of John's words... John said he baptized with water, but one much greater than he was coming, and he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. But these guys never heard of that transpiring. They never knew Jesus. They never heard of how his cross removes their sins. They never heard of him rising from the dead and sending the Holy Spirit. And that's why they answered the way they do. Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. Or more woodenly translated, but whether the Holy Spirit is, we hadn't heard. 
Is he, is he present? Is he not? They hadn't heard whether the Holy Spirit ever came. And if he had, how were they to receive him? They didn't know. And that's why the debates between charismatics and conservatives over whether they're Christians or not eventually just kind of breaks down. The answer isn't so straightforward. On the one hand, yes, insofar as they believe John's message and sought to follow God's purpose for their lives. But on the other hand, no, they haven't been incorporated into into the new covenant community. They hadn't been fully incorporated into the church and received the promised spirit in, in, in in the new covenant sense. The promised Spirit had certainly come already. We know that because we've been reading the book of Acts. But these disciples are still caught in the past. Some kind of time warp. Redemptive historical time warp where they're just back under the old covenant trying to live. And yet the Spirit has already come. And so what does Paul do? Well, he ensures they know Jesus. He ensures they know Jesus. Why? Because Jesus gives the promised Spirit to all who believe in Him. And that's why Paul shares the rest of the story. He, he points them in, to Jesus in verse 4. Not just the Messiah in general terms, Christ, but Jesus explicitly. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, he says, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after Him. Let me identify Him for you. It's Jesus. Jesus becomes, must become the object of their faith now that He has come and now that He has sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus must become the object of their faith. And the one who has... He's, he's telling the one, who ha, the one who was to come has come. He died. He rose. He reigns. And He gives the Spirit to all who trust in Him. And look at verse 5. On hearing this, that is, on hearing about Jesus... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. What's the main point? The main point is that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to all who identify with Him. If you choose not to identify Him through faith and baptism, you will not receive the Holy Spirit. If you choose to identify Him, if you choose to identify with Him through faith and baptism, He will pour out His Holy Spirit upon you. And the Holy Spirit will mediate God's revitalizing and empowering presence. That doesn't mean you'll speak in tongues and prophesy necessarily. Luke's purpose here isn't to say that every Christian must speak in tongues and prophesy, else it's questionable whether they're full of the Spirit. Not at all. The Spirit fills people people in other instances in the book of Acts itself, and when they're filled, they don't speak in tongues or prophesy. So if God means for some not to speak in tongues and prophesy when He fills them with the Spirit, let's not build a theology or a denomination that makes it the criterion for all Christians. Moreover, the Spirit doesn't always produce the same kind of verbal communication. 
in, in the book of Acts alone. Again, we've also seen visions and dreams, instruction, guidance, insight to truth, wisdom to defend the gospel, encouragement, spontaneous praise, preaching, teaching, evangelism. There are all kinds of verbal ministries that the Spirit produces in His people. Here's the bigger question. Do you know Jesus Christ? That's the bigger question here. And are you sure you know Him? Maybe you've called yourself a disciple. Maybe you've even given other the impressions that you're a disciple. Maybe you've, you've even, want, you want, you even wanted to be a disciple and you've gone through all the motions of Christianity and you know all the lingo and all the Christianese we like to speak and all the rituals. But when it comes down to it, you just, you just really don't know Jesus personally. When it comes down to it, you don't know the presence of His Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. You don't experience the love of God poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5. You don't put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit because He's just not there. Your cry is not, Abba, Father, because the spirit of adoption has not, is not in there. It's not with you. Friends, Romans 8 verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And this is not something that you can do. You cannot work to get the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God's grace. It is something, or, or better, someone who you can only receive by the grace of God. And if that's you, I just want to say, humble yourself before the Lord and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures are abundantly clear that for those united to Him, He will give you, the Holy Spirit. Renounce your old ways and set all of your hope on His person and work, and when you do, He will give you the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And He is the one who blesses people with all the blessings of the new covenant. And one of those blessings is the fullness of His Spirit. Perhaps you already have the Spirit. You've tasted the power and present. You tasted the power and peace of His presence, and Jesus is your treasure and your life. To you, I say, never, ever, ever stop looking to Jesus for the Spirit. The Bible says that we live by the Spirit, but also we must continually be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. We must be led by the Spirit, Romans 8. We must walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, and pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6. And that just sums, about sums up the whole of the Christian life, doesn't it? If Jesus blesses His people with the Spirit, never stop depending on Him for the Spirit. And then walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. 
That means you're not controlled anymore by your sinful urges. The Spirit gives you new, reformed urges to live the Lord's way. In all circumstances, you pray, you trust the Lord, you act on what is right in His Word, and all while enjoying the Lord's presence mediated through the Holy Spirit. Beloved, if you're in Christ, we have the Spirit. Now walk in the Spirit. Why don't we pray? Wes, you want to come lead us?